This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. I am Pastor Bart. I will be bringing the Word of God to you today, preaching from it, that, that is, but Timothy is going to come forward to read the scripture passage today, which is taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 33 to the end of the chapter, and it should also, if we're lucky, appear on the screen behind us. So I'm reading from uh, 2 Corinthians um 11, uh, from verse 16 through the end, and I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the word does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on hairs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toyed, often often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor on the King Aretas and the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Amen. Thank you, Timothy. This week, a friend, or someone I assume to be a friend, recommended a book on narcissism to me. The book's called Opening Pandora's Box. I don't remember who the author is. You can go and Google it yourself. And on the very first page of this book, 
It reads, I dedicate this book to me in huge letters. That's the last funny moment in the book, to be honest. It's a deeply unsettling and disturbing book, actually. You may think of a narcissist as someone who is in love with themselves, but a clinical narcissist is really often someone who has a deep sense of shame and inferiority and even disgust with themselves. And instead of dealing with that in a healthy way, they develop this deep need for other people to affirm them and to admire them. In fact, as they grow more skilled, they begin to prey on the weakness of other people in order to feel better about themselves and to establish themselves as a strong and worthy person. People who are narcissists are defensive, controlling, and they never, ever admit that they are wrong. And narcissists tend to be very skilled at expressing empathy without actually feeling empathy. Here's the really disturbing thing. Pastors are three to 20 times more likely to be clinical narcissists than the general population. In fact, one study in the Netherlands found that up to 90% of pastors there showed some signs, some traits of narcissism. Now, obviously, I want to clarify, I'm not a narcissist. <laughs> and anyone who dares to suggest that I am a narcissist will be handed over to Satan at the members' meeting afterwards, will be harassed by my private security team, and you will all or be ordered to shun them for life. I myself am not so crass, of course, but, you know, as I'm reading this book, which this friend recommended, realizing there's some kind of disturbing things about myself that it's awakening. I'm, there are certain things about me that I dislike, that I feel ashamed of, that I want to hide, and I put many layers of defenses around my own heart so that no one around me ever perceives those things. And I do want to project myself in a certain way. I want you guys to admire me or at least, you know, respect me. And I'd be lying if I told you it's not gratifying every week to stand up here for 40 minutes in the place of God. And so I'm realizing reading this book, there's some, there's some honestly, some pretty gross stuff in my own heart that I need to be repenting of and crying out for God to have mercy. You really have no idea. That's my project. But this book raises the question, for all Christians, what is it about the church that makes it such an attractive place for narcissistic, toxic, and abusive leaders? Because in some way, We tend to enable these people, and there's something about them that we ourselves need and are feeding off of. As Paul says in our passage, in disbelief, in verse 20, in fact, you Corinthians even put up with anyone who enslaves you 
or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. You know, I think these Corinthians, like almost all of us, had a sinful craving to be associated with power and strength and success and charisma. And that sinful craving blinded them to the fact that they were being abused and exploited, that they were being preyed upon financially and psychologically by cynical manipulators who did not have their good at heart in the slightest, who had no qualms about destroying one church and moving on and starting a new ministry in the next city. It seems like the Corinthians, this church that Paul himself had founded and prayed over and wept over, they began to despise Paul in their hearts because Paul was not the aggressive, heavy-handed, alpha male leader that they really wanted. Paul was compassionate and tender, gently nursing his churches. He uses a lot of feminine motherly images in his letters, but the foolish Corinthians really preferred being slapped in the face. You know, these super apostles, as Paul calls them, these people who had moved into Corinth after Paul had gone on to the next city himself, these guys projected strength. And they had this aura about them of power, charisma, success. And this group of people showed up in Corinth, and man, they just swept this church off its feet. Everyone fell in love with these people. They brought such inspiring sermons. There wasn't too much of Jesus and the Bible in them, but there were lots of really exciting stories of the power of God working through these people's lives. Through them and their incredible faith, surmounting problems, defeating enemies, providing healing and prosperity, leading thousands to the Lord through their incredible gifts and their incredible ministries. And man, it it felt like an honor just to be in the same room with these incredible men and women of God. And when you went home after the meeting, back to your dingy little apartment, you felt like at least a little of their charisma and power and success had rubbed off on your ordinary life. And these people, these super apostles, made sure that everyone knew about the victorious life that they were living. A life far more glamorous, far more successful, far more satisfying, far more meaningful than the lives of ordinary Christians, much more than anything Paul could promise. In fact, they said, this victorious life that we are enjoying, it can be yours too. If you give us your unquestioning loyalty, your total obedience, your unquestioning submission, and your profound appreciation, cash or credit card accepted. They taught everybody needs a spiritual covering. And we are the best, most powerful, most God-soaked spiritual, spiritual covering any Christian could answer. 
And so this church that Paul had founded, that he'd shepherded so faithfully, is rapidly forgetting about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they're trading in the gospel for a good news that is entirely worldly and fleshly, just baptized, just sprinkled with a thin veneer of Christian words, something that is actually profoundly demonic. And the sheep in Corinth, they're not just getting fleeced, they're getting devoured down to the bones. These Corinthians have been seduced by a massive pile of spiritual BS. They've been swayed by some very foolish bragging. And you know, all this boasting they're doing of their credentials and their connections and their status and their spiritual powers, it's all very foolish. It's embarrassing. It's fleshly. And Paul says, this is not according to Jesus. This is not how the Lord Jesus would speak and it's not how the Lord Jesus wants his followers to speak and to act. It's foolish. However, it seems like foolishness is the only language the Corinthians understand these days. And if Paul's going to get to them, he's going to have to speak a little foolishness himself. He's going to have to get down in the mud and do some foolish bragging of his own. So what follows, what is known as the fool's speech, Paul is going to give us a brilliant parody of the foolish boasting of the super apostles. And he's going to expose their claims as empty and manipulative. Now Paul pretty quickly dismisses their claims of racial superiority, of Jewish heritage. It's not important to Paul, but it is to these people. Paul's like, yeah, I can pull up my birth certificate. No one can trump my Hebrew nationality, my descendants, my descendants from Abraham. Who's the better servant of Christ, though? Who's the better minister of Jesus? And reading between the lines, it seems like the super apostles viewed and projected their thriving ministries and their trouble-free lives as clear evidence of the favor of God. And Paul, with his difficulties and his struggles and his anxieties, that, that guy obviously does not have the Holy Spirit, at least not to the incredible amount that we are enjoying his power and presence. But Paul boasts, like a deranged person, he says, man, I would really not be forced to make these comparisons. Paul boasts, not about what he's achieved in ministry, but about what he has suffered. He doesn't brag about the churches he's planted, the people he's baptized, the many books of the New Testament he's written. Paul boasts of the things he has suffered. And he gives us a long list of all the terrible things he's endured in his ministry. The third such list in this letter of 2 Corinthians. It's a depressing catalog of whippings, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, dangers, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure, betrayal 
and anxiety. And it's hard even reading these words to imagine what it was like for Paul to go through, go through years of these sufferings. Some of these things are described in the book of Acts, but quite a few aren't. I don't think Luke had enough, had a long enough scroll to document everything that Paul went through as he served Jesus. Notice all these things Paul lists are happening to him at the hands of other people. They're not things he's choosing to happen. They're happening to him. He's passive. And you know, we all fear the loss of control. It's risky and it's frightening when things start happening to you. We want to be the ones who make things happen in our lives, who make the choices, who make the decisions, who are in control. Paul is living an out-of-control life, it feels like. And all of us want to be strong so we can avoid that frightening, out-of-control feeling. that we can control our destiny. It might be a small destiny, but it's my destiny, and I want to be the ones holding on to it. And weakness, the inability to control what happens to you, that feels like a terrifying loss of security. And that was the story of Paul's ministry. And he boasts in his weakness. I don't know if there's anything more counterintuitive in the entire Bible than boasting in our weakness. Think about these words and whether you want them in your personal brand. Failure, inadequacy, mediocrity, disability, disease, disappointment. Not how we want to be perceived, not who we want to be. And you know, I, I don't expect anyone to bow down and worship me, but I would like to appear, you know, as kind of basically competent at life with one or two solid achievements at least that I can point to. I want to feel like, you know, at least an asset to my community. And my own self-worth is bound up with being self-sufficient, able to handle my own problems, overcome my own challenges, and I'd honestly be ashamed to be one of those embarrassing people Life's losers who need help from other people and are perceived as a burden. That's who Paul knew himself to be. That's who Paul embraced himself as being. And this theme in Paul's life and ministry began at the very beginning of his story in Damascus. 
Damascus, of course, on the road to Damascus was where Paul met Jesus as he was going to arrest Christians. And here he describes, of all things he could choose from his CV, describes being let down from the walls of Damascus at night in a bag of braided rope, fleeing in fear from his enemies. It's a pretty, pretty humble and humbling and dishonorable exit, something you'd think would, would be an embarrassing memory for Paul. Especially when you discover that to, to encourage bravery in their besieging, besieging soldiers, the Romans gave a golden crown to the first of their warriors who would go over the wall into the enemy city as the bravest hero of them all. Here's Paul, boasting instead of the exact opposite. In pitiful contrast, Paul has the seemingly cowardly escape out of the city in a basket lowered by other people at night. And that made a deep impression on Paul. And he seems to have viewed this escape in the basket as a template of all future ministry. Remember, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was at the head of a band of soldiers bearing worldly weapons, worldly strength. Paul meets Jesus and he leaves the city stripped of all weapons but the cross. Stripped of all weapons, external and internal. And we have to be careful we don't read this catalog of Paul's sufferings as a kind of boast in his ability to endure anything that the enemy could throw at him, as though he's some kind of great stoic able to endure blow after blow and emerge bloody yet unbowed. No, no, Paul knows psychological weakness the daily pressure of his anxiety for the churches, his feeling of weakness when he encountered weakness in his brothers and sisters, burning with indignation and anger when people are deceived and led into sin. Paul wasn't one of those narcissists who despise empathy, to express it without feeling it. Paul did not have that kind of closed and shielded heart, bristling with defenses and no one would come in, come close and know who he was. So no one could hurt him. Like Jesus, Paul's heart had been opened in love to others. And over, and over again in Paul's ministry, he chooses to be vulnerable, to willingly take the risk of feeling the pain of others and even receiving pain from others. You know, the super apostles were 
incredible people. They were really impressive. But you know, they would have never identified with the weak the way Paul did. They never would have allowed themselves to feel weak around weak people. In fact, the super apostles, like all narcissists, would have seized upon the weak and taken advantage of them and preyed upon them and exploited them to feel better about themselves. But they would never have suffered alongside of them, wept with them, sat on the ground beside them. That's what genuine, the genuine ministry of Jesus looks like. You know, as I read Paul exclaiming here, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I can't help hearing behind Paul the voice of Christ himself. Looking at Adam's helpless race, and exclaiming himself, who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. Son of God, burned with anger against the one who came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And the Son of God, burned with love for the lost and for the foolish. The story of the gospel is not a story of Jesus coming down from heaven in power and might and glory to dominate and enslave and exploit and to crush. Instead, incredibly, Jesus descends from the highest place. He lets go of all the security and the power and the glory that we are ceaselessly striving for. And he takes on himself the form of a slave, the lowest, the most shameful, the most inhuman position. He comes to be struck in the face himself. Not to abuse, but to be abused, not to dominate, but to be crucified, to suffer and to die for all of us, petty little narcissists who crucified Jesus as a threat to our power. Now we have before us this afternoon two ways, the way of power and the way of weakness. The way of power needs no justification. It's obviously attractive to every single human being. And it offers us security, control, validation, significance, success, all the things we are born craving. There's a much less traveled way, the way of weakness, the way of the cross. 
that way is deeply counterintuitive, a way that no human being ever chooses on their own. Certainly one you would never choose for yourself. And even those of us who are on that path today find ourselves desperately looking for a way off of it. The way of weakness is hard. The way of weakness, though, is the way of love. Where we stop seeing people as objects for us to use and manipulate, maybe in crass ways more often, in very subtle ways, to feel better about ourselves, to justify ourselves, to use for our own advantage. In the way of weakness, we stop seeing other people as threats or as prey or as accessories to our own project of self-fulfillment. And we see them as God made them, beloved image bearers for whom Jesus died. And in the way of weakness, as we follow Jesus, we learn to identify, to feel solidarity with all the strugglers, all the stragglers around us, all who feel lost and forlorn, we feel weak and abandoned. And when we're with them, we're with Jesus. It's a miracle for anyone to choose this path. It's a miracle for anyone to stay on this path. Let's bow our heads and pray desperately and in faith for God to give us the spirit of Jesus. Loving Heavenly Father, All of us are imprisoned in our own ways, in our very tiny little egos. And we have incredible capacities for self-deception, for even using Christian things and biblical words to justify the way we think about ourselves and the way we treat others. And Lord, we ask that you would... Give us the spirit of Christ. Give us a deep security in him. A profound awareness that our evil has been forgiven. Our shame has been cleansed. That we are loved by you somehow miraculously out of your incredible mercy and love. And Lord, give us the grace to choose the way of weakness because that is the way of Jesus, and because we see his footsteps ahead of us, because we love the one who died for us, and we want to follow our shepherd wherever he leads us. In his great name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.